Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. So, here we are now in another episode of Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers, and this week, <laughs> and this week we are being joined not just by my four-year-old who picked a bunch of really disgusting yard flowers for me. And it's all about dinosaurs. Yes, but more importantly, we are being joined by the Reverend Dr. Paul Chilcote, who is a Wesleyan expert and scholar, and it is just an honor to be in your presence, Paul. Uh, it's my honor. I'm, I'm privileged to be here with you. been looking forward to this so much and uh, just anxious for the conversation we'll share together. Yes, totally, totally. And it's just, this is how God comes to us. And people named Paul who are, you know, just friends we hadn't met yet and in really, really disgusting, soggy yard flowers. <laughs> there you go. Okay for you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, guys, now go, go play. Okay. It all starts with a gift. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> so. I told, uh, Jess, I told uh, Natalie earlier that I, our three-year-old, uh, granddaughter is here in the house. I, I expect these kind of interruptions to do this too and, and welcome them. Mm -hmm. And both of my babies are home today, so <laughs> that might What would we too. do without those kids and grandkids? Uh, get more sleep, I think is the answer. <laughs> <There you laughs> <go. laughs> Take more vacations in our case, but. <laughs> uh. So Paul, the place we always like to start these podcasts because it's just so, it's been so life-giving is for you to share as much as you'd like to with us about your spiritual journey. Yeah, wow, how many hours do we have? That's a, you know, that's a big question. So I'll try and be as brief as I possibly can. I've actually given some thought to this, you know, coming into the conversation with both of you. Um, if you cut me, I bleed Methodist. That's maybe a simple place to begin. Uh, my father and a couple uncles are, were Methodist ministers. My grandfather and his brother, Methodist ministers. Uh, there's a bit, a bit of our DNA that's just so thoroughly grounded in our Methodist heritage and very much a churched family. So I, I come to my faith through the instrumentality of the church and, and living inside the church, uh, dwelling there. Um, which isn't to say that crises and conversion and, uh, you know, kind of uh, looking the other direction and coming back wasn't a big part of that journey as well. Uh, and maybe typically for someone of my gener generation, kind of a late boomer, um, that era of the Billy Graham crusade and, and that kind of evangelicalism, I was a part of my own story, so I think it was around around the age of 12, actually attended a Billy Graham crusade, and not at the crusade, but later on in reflection on it, uh, just felt, yeah, I I really need to turn my life over, over to God. So there's kind of a typical, you know, uh, narrative uh, along those lines, typical of my own generation, 
in any way. But um, in my college years, I really felt a deeper call in my life into the ministry. And as a PK and a grand PK, you know, that was a, a pretty big struggle uh, because I had seen, I guess I would call it the underside of the church. Mm. You know, I, I had seen the life of the Christian community from the underbelly. Um, and there was a lot in that that I really did not like. I don't think many people do like that side of the life of the church. And, and I don't, it's not really right to call it the human side of the church. It's just uh, the reality of life and uh, the dynamics of life, uh, brokenness uh, in life. But as I struggled with that and prayed about it, um, made the decision uh, myself to enter the ministry and then went from the Midwest uh, down into the South Duke Divinity School and did my training there for the ministry. So um, this has been for me kind of a, a, a steady journey. Um, I, can't, I can't call up any kind of cataclysmic uh, Saul of Damascus uh, kind of experiences. It's been more a, a slow journey into a deeper relationship with God uh, through Christ and in the power of the Spirit. Um, uh, one other part of my journey, though, I did definitely want to mention because it has been so central. Um, when I was a little boy, I had an uncle, a Methodist pastor in South Indiana, and he was very close to what's known as St. Meinrad Arch Abbey, which is a Benedictine monastery. And he really wanted to take uh, my, my father and my older brother and myself there just, just to see that community. That was the first time I ever stepped foot on the grounds of a monastery. And I was just enthralled. I think I was maybe eight. And it just kind of overwhelmed me. Um, and so that memory was there. And then many, many, many years later, I participated in what was the first Methodist Benedictine conference that was outside of Rome. And uh, it was there that I learned about the possibility of being an oblate of a monastic Benedictine community, which basically means that you seek to follow the rule of St. Benedict as the best you can, regardless of your status in life. And, and non-Roman Catholics are welcome to be a part of that journey. Um, fast forward uh, a few more years, and uh, I established a connection with Mount Angel Abbey way out in Oregon and uh, became an oblate. And last year celebrated my 25th anniversary uh, as an oblate of that abbey. So I, I've, there's a convergence in my life of my Methodist heritage and that Roman Catholic Benedictine tradition uh, that has just been life-giving to me. Um, all of us are novices in the spiritual life. So certainly we're novices in prayer. Uh, we're, we're novices in, in the way in which we actually live our faith out in the world. Uh, we're kind of beginners and always needing to learn, always needing to grow. And that's the way my life of faith, I think, has been. I think that's a good analogy, uh, a journey. It's been a journey in which I've opened myself up to the possibility of growing deeper in love with God 
and deeper in love with others. That is really cool. I've um, visited an abbey in Northern Colorado myself um, when I was younger and I was trying to like suss out my call. And um, yeah, there's something that's really very cool about following the, the order of the hours. Um, yeah. But as an ADHD person that struggles with time management, it would be awfully hard for me to be an oblate. So <laughs> I give kudos to you. That's really awesome. <laughs> well, here's, you know, when I, when I asked uh, the uh, director of oblates, who was Father Bernard, now, now deceased, when I first met him to talk with him about the possibility of becoming an oblate, you know, I wanted to know, what are your expectations? And he said, kind of sat back in his chair and he said, we hope that you would pray daily. I said, yeah, I, I, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, a good place to start would be the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, he had me at hello. <laughs> yeah. Because they think they cycle through them every, all 150, like every two weeks or something like that, right? Yeah, originally it was to every week. And I, I'll never forget one of my favorite professors at uh, Duke uh, in my seminary years there was uh, Father Roland Murphy, who was a Carmelite. And he went to what was known as a minor seminary when he was 10 years of age to begin his preparation for the priesthood because he was the firstborn son in an Irish Roman Catholic family. That meant he'd be a priest. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any choice about it. So, but anyway, from the time he was 10 until I know him, let's say 60, he had prayed through the entirety of the Psalms every week. Wow. Father Murphy was the Psalms. Mm -hmm. He lived and breathed the Psalms. We, we used to say, uh, Dr. Murphy, he, he, can't, he can't ask for someone to give him the salt without asking in Psalter. And he was a specialist in the Psalms. That was his area, wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That's yeah. pretty cool. Great people. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, I also have had the, the privilege of being at an abbey. Um, we have one in upstate New York, the Abbey of the Genesee. Yeah, um, very famous yeah. one. Yeah, and um, that became a, a popular pilgrimage spot for us at seminary, which is where me and Jess met at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity. Yeah. Um, and uh, and a, kind of an interesting factual tidbit for people who live in that area is that they also make their own bread that you can buy at the local grocery store. Yeah, monk's um, bread. Yeah, it's really exactly. <laughs> it's really delicious. So mm -hmm. it became, you know, we, 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 we went and we visited, we went to, uh, I want to say it was Vespers um, when we were, when we were there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so we just really got to take in that atmosphere um, and then just walk around and feel the peace of that environment. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, the beautiful thing about that monastic lifestyle, especially when you compare it to, as you were describing, the underbelly of church culture, is that the people there um, feel very self-confident and at peace mm -hmm. in the best possible way. There was just this incredible lack of drama and nonsense and the world's worries. Yeah. So it was just a very serene place. 
I'm especially, yeah. The, the, the thing that's exciting to me about it is that, um, of course, monks and nuns in a monastic community like that have a very different life than most of us. They're unmarried. Uh, they don't have children like those in the background. I mean, the, the distractions, that kind of life. But the basic principles of the Benedictine way are applicable to any of us in our lives. You know, to be, to be serious about our relationship with God, uh, to do all that we can to become more loving in life. Uh, and uh, the, the, real, the real focus of any Benedictine community, I would say, is to acknowledge and appreciate the presence of God in everything. So you're, you're always looking for God. And any of us can do that. You, you don't have to be in a monastery to be doing that. Just walk your neighborhood. Yeah. That's true. There's another little person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is my nine-year-old son, Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Say hi, Daniel. Hey. So, yeah. This, these are yeah okay go ahead and do that but these are the these are the blessings of life but um yeah no it's it's you just have a really really beautiful faith story thank you I yeah. yeah i appreciate well, every, every one of us has our own story don't we my that's true yep one of my one of my mentors you you've, you've carried me back to duke for for a lot of reasons here i guess and just narrating my story but one of my, another great professor, John Westerhoff in uh, Christian religious education, I said, Every, everybody can always talk about two things, their story, their life story, and their dreams. Uh, so you open that, you open that door with anybody um, and, and they'll be with you. Uh, Janet, who's much more the extrovert than I am, I'm really a very introverted person. But Janet, you know, she she will hear a person's entire life story and all their dreams on a on a flight, on a plane, before it lands. And she has the ability to put people at ease and uh, and and has heard amazing stories about people's lives. Most of them searching, mm -hmm. seeking, you know, really wanting to to have a, a life that's meaningful and filled with purpose that's that's what most people are yearning for i think i think and that's we have, and we have a great story to tell the story mm -hmm. of our faith i mean that's the that's the story we have to tell of a god of love who embraces all people as beloved children uh, who wants the best for us in all things that's that's a good story to tell <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the story of everyone who went before us. It's also all of the stories that we find in scriptures. Yeah. Stories of how we came to be and then our stories of our dreams. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, Paul, since you are such a wealth of experience and because you have, you have been to some corners of the faith world that me and Jess have yet uh, to have the privilege of going. If in the midst of all of that, you have a war story from the ministry that you might want to share with us, like a difficult or challenging story and how you overcame it. To the right, to the right. 
Wow. Yeah, we all have those stories, don't we? That life is not a not a an inclined plane that just zooms up. It's, it's a <laughs> isn't that true? <laughs> yeah, it is a roller coaster, and it's the kind of roller coaster that also flip turn, flips around, flips you upside down. Um. Yeah, we've had we've had an amazing life. Um, God has blessed us in in so many ways. Uh, a couple of my favorite places uh, in terms of the ministries into which we've been called are, are related to Africa. So we serve first in Kenya, uh, where I was on the faculty of, it's actually the oldest theological seminary in Kenya, and then helped to launch uh, Africa University in Zimbabwe, uh, the first United Methodist University on the continent. And um, I think probably our experiences in Africa reflect our highest highs and our lowest lows. Uh, and maybe it's just because of the unique situations we were in. In, um, uh, in Kenya, we were, as I said, at one of the oldest theological institutions there. And at Africa University, you could say the youngest uh, on the continent. So that was a juxtaposition of really interesting dynamics. And so in Kenya, I was always saying, if only we could break out of these traditions. Uh, and what I meant by that were all the British traditions in which those Africans were steeped, including some things that I thought just were not healthy or just. But then in Zimbabwe, I was always finding myself saying, if only we had a tradition. <laughs> So it's kind of living in the tension uh, of those things. Uh, as I'm talking about that, I'm just trying to think about a really difficult time I've, I've had. Uh, and a part of that was related to Africa University, actually, because there was a lot of being a brand new institution and kind of launching things from the ground up and having a community that from the very beginning was extremely diverse uh, with Africans from about five or six different African nations in the very first year. Uh, the university now, I think, has more than 30 African nations represented. But that meant navigating a community in which there were some monumental differences, uh, really different perspectives. Um, I think some of, the, some of the Americans that were a part of the launch of the university um, came to that experience uh, a bit cold uh, to it without any major uh, intercultural kind of experiences and kind of a stereotypical aren't all Africans the same understanding. Um, and so there were a lot of differences to navigate. Um, and it, it required a lot of communication. And um, honoring the kind of styles of communication from those different cultures as well. I think Americans, if I were working with Americans in that same kind of situation, I would just go directly to the issue. But in some of the African cultures, you couldn't do that. That, that would not be an appropriate thing to do, to be that direct. You have to kind of come come to things around the bend, around the corner. You can't go directly to it. 
So, you know, those kind of, I, I would say some of the most difficult situations that I've had to deal with have been those in which multiple cultures are involved and navigating all of these different cultures and, and really uh, keeping very central in, in your heart, probably more than your mind, an appreciation for the differences. Because you see, it was those differences that were creating the tension. So the natural, the natural inclination is to kind of decry difference. Why can't we all be the same? But uh, to try and keep a, a steady, even um, uh, heart in all of that was a cha real challenge. Um, but it, it was amazing when, when we were able to work through those kind of challenges and come come through it all to a resolution that was much better than any one of us could have developed. Um, it took it took a community, uh, it took a family to build an institution. Uh, so challenging, but oh my goodness, unbelievably fulfilling and exciting. That's yeah. That's just incredibly deep. It, it it made me think of so how many of how many of the struggles that any of us have faced in the ministry will have to do with navigating diversity and Absolutely. how well yeah and how well or how poorly any of us manage that um, and especially like in the landscape of the United Methodist Church right now we are a global entity but have not been completely faithful in taking care of one another. And I'm, I'm putting that quite delicately, but I mean, in, in just the history of our denomination, you know, we, all, all of our international friends are all in central conferences that are yoked to the United States. And we've got kind of this dynamic where the United States is kind of mom to everybody else. So we're practicing mm -hmm. this bit of colonialism in spite of our better judgment. Yeah. Um, you know, a, and a big part of the, the schism that's going on in the United Methodist Church right now has to do with differences in culture and differences in how we perceive uh, beliefs, practices, understandings, theologies based on what our culture tells us about those things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think you put your finger on that, Natalie. Um, I, I would say if, if there is any challenge that, that is more critical right now than any other, and this is both in church and society, it's the issue of polarization and the fundamentalisms that attach to that polarization. So you have you have these these deep divisions within our within the national politic, you know, um, red and red and blue. And then fundamentalism, which is really a worldview. It's not a theology, it's it's how you view the world that basically says we possess all the truth and no one else does. That kind of fundamentalism plays into the polarization we're experiencing, which means that the two different 
just thinking of two elements that, you know, the two different parties or communities get driven further and further and further apart. And here, this, uh, you know, Jess and Natalie, this is where I think our Wesleyan heritage has so much to offer because our tradition as Wesleyan Christians um, is conjunctive, it's synthetic. The Wesleys had this amazing ability to hold together aspects of the Christian faith that more often than not were torn apart. So you think of things like faith and works. Yeah, it's not an either or, it's a both mm -hmm. and. You think of something like personal and social, it's a both and. You think of word and table, you think of physical and spiritual. These are all things that the Wesleys were able to hold together. Uh, our tendency is to separate them out and identify with one component over against the other. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we have a, a real challenge uh, in the life of the church and within our society as a whole in terms of this kind of radical polarization. And I think, I think we're called to a ministry in our time, more than anything else, of simple bridge building. How can, you know, how can we build bridges? Um, and that happens, I, I'm more and more convinced, it doesn't happen in, in major mega kind of ways. It, it happens in terms of individual relationships, personal relationships, it comes when we reach out across divides. Um, I've got a great story about my daughter, Anna. Anna was living here in Orlando a number of years ago, and it was, it was that time, I'm sure you'll remember it, of really hyper anti-Muslim rhetoric. Uh, it was when the, you know, certain politicians were wanting to close our borders to Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And she uh, worked out in a gym and there was a, a young Muslim uh, woman about her age uh, and she knew from her apparel, you know, that she was Muslim who also worked out there. And so she said one, you know, one day there at the uh, gym, she just mustered up the courage uh, to go up to her and to speak with her. So she just went up to her and she said, hi, my name's Anna. Said, I just, I just felt called to say to you that I am happy that you're here. I, we need diversity in our community. I'm happy to, to be with you, to share life with you, even if it's just here in the gym. And she said, mm -hmm. this, this young woman burst into tears Aww. and hugged her because she felt so alienated, um, so, so, uh, so much anger, you know, flowing her direction. And when love and care and compassion came in her direction, it was just like a, a breath of fresh air. It was like being washed over. Mm -hmm. um, it was something beautiful. And a deep friendship developed out of that and a community of Christian and Muslim women that gather together to talk about what, what, how do we raise our kids? You know, what does it mean to be a mother? What are the things that, that make life real for you?
where are your biggest struggles? How can we help each other? This is this is yeah. what it's all about. Mm-hmm. This is what life is meant to be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, connections and relationships and um, and opportunities to share life on on deep levels. I um, preached a sermon a few weeks ago where I was like, I'm getting political, but it's like it was just a reminder of saying it's okay to believe, you know, because we hear so many crazy, weird positions that are coming out of the media all the time of like, these are the laws that are being passed. And these are the things that we're imposing on people and yada, yada. And I'm just like, you know what, let's go back to the time where reasonable people like believed that maybe kids should be in school and not working dangerous jobs. Let's go back to the, like the reasonable time when we believed that like, slavery is a moral wrong and always has been (laughs) and it's not just a perspective just like reminding people i'm like and to help them like assert and say you know this is a reasonable position for a reasonable christian to take and not you know kind of be constantly pushed in all these different directions to say we can like take some moral stance to say no we're not gonna we're not okay with this and to give people that courage to say you know what, uh, we, this is not something we want for our society or for our kids yeah. and not be pushed in a weird polarizing direction and into very strange, in my opinion, very strange and creepy laws that are coming out, banning books and yeah. banning yeah. certain types of medical treatment. Like, what are we doing? Well, we're, you know, we're, we're political beings. You know, we, we can't avoid politics. A politics is a part of life. And yes. I believe God God wants to have uh, have a voice to 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 have a place in every aspect of our life, not just some aspects of our life, kind of you know, the spiritual aspects of life. No, God wants to be engaged and and operating and, and living in all aspects of our lives as as people. So um, I'm I'm political, um, and and when something happens in the political arena that I believe is antithetical to the good news of God's love that we know in Jesus, uh, I feel I have a responsibility to speak into that. Uh, and the thing again that's that's so disheartening, I think, is maybe the right word, disheartening to me in our time is the way in which I'll say the Christian label has become associated with so many aspects of our life that simply are not Christ-like. Mm-hmm. You know, and are people really... who, are, who claim to be Christian who are embracing values and actions that bear no resemblance to Jesus, none. Absolutely. And in fact, are Amen. antithetical to the way of Jesus. So, and I think in situations like that, uh, we as faithful followers of Jesus have a responsibility to speak out, to to make our voices heard, um, not not in judgment, but sim- simply as a witness to what we believe is the way of Jesus and not the way of the world. Absolutely. But it's hard. These yeah. are not these are not easy times. Um, in in which we're living, they're they're what what is it the the uh, Chinese proverb? These are interesting times. You know, these are these are interesting times, which means they're they're difficult times. But 
yes. challenging, absolutely, but um, all a part of the adventure um, into which God has placed us. Absolutely. So actually, I had a couple questions for you that are really kind of specific to your work. Um, yeah, sure. If you don't mind. Um, so not everybody knows. Um, so when you become a Methodist pastor, you don't automatically get like a giant list of like, here are all the Wesleyan institutions um, that we're part of. So I kind of wanted to know a about the um, the Wesley Center at Cambridge and I'm joking, like, why isn't it at Oxford? Um, <laughs> but then the other one is um, the uh, wanted to know, like, how you got into specifically working with um, Methodist history um, with regard to women leadership and women's participation. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, let me kind of work from kind of chronologically, but do this again as quickly as I can. Um, I did my seminary uh, training at Duke and then stayed directly uh, to work on my PhD there. I had known for a long time, my middle name, by the way, is Wesley. No, but I had known for a long time that I wanted to do something in Wesley studies. And I had um, kind of nurtured a, a passion for liturgy and, and sacramental theology in particular. My own spirituality is very Eucharistic. Um, it's very much oriented around the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. So I wanted to do something in that. Went to my doctor father, Frank Baker, and said, I think I'd like to do a dissertation on J. Ernest Rattenbury, who was a scholar of Charles Wesley and had done a lot in that area, and kind of do a Rattenbury-Wesley dissertation. And he said, oh, when, when was it that Ernest died? I said, oh, I, I think it was 1963, Dr. Baker. I said, oh, he's not been dead nearly long enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my dissertation bubble burst. And I thought, what do I do? So I was a, a, bit, a bit depressed, actually, and thought, I'm just going to go to the rare book room at Duke and just fiddle around in there. So I was literally in the rare book room. Uh, at a time when you could pull, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century folios off of a shelf and look at them. And I saw this large three-volume folio. Pulled that off, and it turned out to be the manuscript journal of Hester Ann Rogers, who was an early Methodist woman and a very close friend of John Wesley. And I started reading it. And I could not stop. And from that moment on, I, I knew I have got to do something on women in early Methodism. And um, long story short, that evolved uh, pretty rapidly uh, into work on the women preachers of early Methodism. Um, and boy, at that time, this was in the early 80s, I, I can say to you pretty definitively, Nothing had been done. Sure. Nothing, maybe two or three articles here or there. Nothing substantive had been done on any of this. So I felt like plowing absolute new soil. So exciting. And the more I the more I studied the women of early Methodism, 
the more inspired I was by the quality of their Christian living. Um, and, and the more excited I became about what they offer to us in the life of the church today. So a number of different volumes uh, kind of spilled out of that uh, related to early Methodist women. Uh, their, their deep friendships with one another, um, the, the centrality of love in all that they did, um, the self-sacrificial love that characterized their lives, just absolutely inspiring. Uh, so that's how I, how I got into it. Um, I think providentially, just being guided by the Spirit to pull a three-volume folio off of a shelf. And I think God works that way sometimes, not always, but God works that way in our lives to bring new things uh, to our attention. So from that work on, on early Methodist women, all the way up to uh, a more recent volume that I did on the Methodist defense of women in ministry. Uh, that's been uh, something of a keynote uh, of what I've done in Wesley studies. Second, second kind of area related to it. Um, I am the second born of two sons. So I have one older brother. So I have always kind of harbored this special love for Charles Wesley, as opposed to older brother John. There was an older brother, you know, Samuel Jr. above them, but died rather early. So it was really the two of them through most of their lives. So I had some sense of that sibling dynamic. Uh, and I think all of us know, if we know anything about the Wesleys at all, that Charles always fell in the shadow of his older brother. And Charles is such a fascinating figure and such a fabulous figure. Uh, some of the people, but I'm sure not all uh, listening to this, uh, will know that Charles Wesley was one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. So John Wesley preached and wrote theological work. Charles Wesley sang his faith a lyrical theology. So um, I, I've devoted a lot of my energy to getting Charles out from under uh, John's shadow. Um, served uh, eight years as president of the Charles Wesley Society um, and just love, love the hymns of Charles Wesley. They're just packed, 9,000 hymns, packed with such rich um, theology and, and practice. Or Christian living, um, it, you know, we're, we're losing it a bit, you know, in, in an era that has shifted pretty uh, dramatically into uh, uh, more contemporary styles of music, which I, I highly applaud, by the way. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's essentially a good thing. But I also don't want us to lose, you know, the hymns of, of Charles Wesley. And sometimes when I'm on the road working in a, in a church, doing a workshop or something, I'll say, how many of you have read a sermon of John Wesley? Nobody. Say, how many of you have sung, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? Hark the herald angels sing. Christ the Lord is risen today. Love divine, all love's excelling. Yep. And you get an immediate reaction. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we Methodists are are a people who have historically sung our faith, 
Uh, and some, so some of my other interests and in, in publications have come in the whole area of lyrical theology, kind of spun mm -hmm. out of my work on Charles Wesley. So yeah. just a moment, I, I want to tell you this because um, so I downloaded, um, I think Randy Maddox and his wife put together all the um, Charles Wesley's like family prayers together. And uh, a couple weeks ago, my my daughter, Charlotte, somehow I managed to like name both of my daughters after Methodist people. So my older daughter, Susanna, and my <laughs> you know, younger daughter is Charlotte, which my husband picked the name. But oh, that's kind of the girl version of Charles. Whoops. Um, <laughs> that's so, right. So she's teething right now. So in, in church, I read out a couple of the standards of a child cutting his tooth and i was just like yeah. oh charlotte are you crying because of original sin because we killing <laughs> a child teething to original sin so <laughs> yeah charles you know charles uh poetry is is staggering um you know all all those nine thousand hymns aren't love divine all loves excelling of course there's, there's a lot of garbage in it but there's so much that's phenomenal. And, and not long ago, when we were kind of in the middle of the pandemic, um, Ken Carter, our bishop here in Florida at the time, had invited others to, uh, to read through the Psalms uh, in the month of January. It must have been 2020, perhaps. And uh, I had always wanted to, to work my way through Charles Wesley's lyrical paraphrases of the Psalms. So mm. he wrote hymns on almost all the Psalms. There are only about 12, 13 that he did not write on. Uh, and so I did that and packaged that into a kind of a devotional work entitled, entitled Sheltering with the Psalms, kind of reflecting that sheltering in place uh, image of the pandemic. And, and working through that material was just a full-blown devotional exercise for me in and of itself. Uh, just phenomenal work. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, you know I've, I've dabbled in a lot of areas. I've always said I never, I never learned the lesson of, I think it's Jack Palance in, in um, oh, what is the movie now? I can't remember. But he said, you know, the, the, the key to life is one thing, is, is focusing on one. I've never been able to do that. Me neither. I've been all over the place in terms of Wesley studies, women in Methodism, uh, mission and evangelism has been a, a passion of mine as well. Uh, yeah. So that is wonderful. And thank you for sharing all of that because that's great. Um, so oh, you, sorry, sorry. You, you asked me about Wesley, Wesley House in, in yes. Cambridge. Um, this was something that just kind of came serendipitously out of the blue. Uh, I had retired and um, uh, Jane Leach, who is the principal of what's known as Wesley House in Cambridge, it's a college, um, connected with me on Facebook. So I had this dm that came in from her that said i've got a crazy idea and uh just wonder how you feel about it she said we're in need right now of of someone to fill a vacancy as director of the center for global wesleyan theology and you're the first person that came to mind would you be Aww. interested in doing this 
and showed it to Janet, my wife. I said, this, this just came. I said, is this something that we should think about? Um, kind of ironically, uh, our daughter, uh, Mary, and her family had moved in with us in our little, I'll call it a cottage, uh, kind, of, kind of as a consequence of uh, the pandemic and circumstances they found themselves in. Uh, so they were living with us. And so a part of me thought it, it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to spend part of the year in Cambridge and part of the year back home. So mm -hmm. all, when all was said and done, the last two years, we spent essentially five months in Cambridge at different times of the year in the two years. Uh, and uh, so 10 months altogether over these two years there. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, Wesley House was one of the seven or eight theological seminaries for the Methodist Church in Britain. Okay. Um, a number of years ago now, uh, they consolidated all of those resources uh, into two institutions. Okay. And Wesley House Cambridge was not one of those two that would continue as a residential seminary. So it had to really kind of redefine itself. And given the fact that it's located there in Cambridge, you know, a major research center in the world, uh, Jane and the leadership felt that the direction they should take would be in the direction of research. So they offer research degrees. Okay. Uh, MAs, certificates, diplomas, uh, and a PhD through one of the Cambridge universities. Um, oh. And I had the, you know, the just the real privilege uh, of being a part of that for those two years. And uh, so it's a very, as you can imagine, it's a very diverse community. It's not a large community. It's a pretty small community, but Africa, Asia, America, Europe are all represented in that community. And uh, just a real thrill to be there. Kind, kind of ironically, my, my teaching career actually began at Wesley College in Bristol, okay, uh, where I where I had a I was on a Rotary Foundation fellowship for one year back in the early eighties, mm. and that's the first mm -hmm. place I actually ever taught. So my first teaching was at Wesley College in England in Bristol, and I, even though I was already retired, I'll I'll say it concluded bookended with Wesley House uh, in Cambridge, kind of fun, very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's just such wonderful history. I reiterate what Jess said that despite being Methodist, and I'm a lifelong Methodist here, I don't have quite the 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 depth of history that you have, Paul, but I am a, I, I have been Methodist from the cradle. Um, but still, I don't have all of this information about all of the different institutions and about all like just our family tree is huge and we're constantly learning new information about it yeah. i i also i i i appreciate your grace and your patience and your sense of humor because i uh, i set myself up in the kitchen at the beginning of this conversation <laughs> that was going to be a quiet place in the house because i'm an idiot and then immediately um my no 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 immediately and then immediately my kids set up a dance party in the kitchen directly. Oh, right. And now 
Um, no, I've not, I've not met this beautiful little girl next to you. Who is this yeah. beautiful little girl? This is my daughter, Lily. And Hi, this Lily. is my son, Daniel. Mama, and my other son. All right, I heard you. And my other hey, son, guys. Alex, in the other room. So anyway, I, my kids have been into all kinds of stuff during this, this time that we've been talking. But this is the stuff that makes ministry worthwhile, really. Well, the, the Shona in Zimbabwe have this lovely saying. If you can talk, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. Mm -hmm. So singing and dancing, they're doing the right thing. You keep it up, Lily. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, so all of that is to say that what excites me in this world is kind of ever present and always there. What excites you in the world right now? Oh man, you know, I was I was I was thinking about this. You know, I'm again prompted, uh, full disclosure here, prompted about this, and the thing that just kept coming back to my mind is what really excites me is the mystery who is God, engaging the mystery who is you. So that's about each and every one of us. And at the center of that mystery, both of God and of us, is love. That's at the center of everything. If we simply have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hands to embrace it. You know, so the, the mystery who is God embracing the mystery who is you, that's what excites me. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of mystery going on right there <laughs> and a whole natalie, bunch of natalie is being attacked for podcast listeners natalie is currently being attacked by all of her kids so. <laughs> well it's this wrestling. has been a, a thrill for me to be a part of this with you natalie and jess it's wonderful to meet you and to get to know you and uh, natalie to meet the, some of your family there those kids that you're having so much fun with so uh, thanks, thanks so much for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share this time with you. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Thank you so, so much, Paul. It's absolutely and sincerely an honor. Yes, well, let's, let's keep in touch too. Oh, absolutely. And I, I probably am gonna email you shortly. I have like some more questions about like what you might know about a certain research um, area in Methodism that I'm thinking about, so. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime, feel free anytime. All righty. Well, thank so, you. Yes, peace, peace and love to you, Paul, in all things. Peace and joy. Yes. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye bye. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.